Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. We'll dismiss the children at this time, three years old through kindergarten. They don't have to go. If you'd like for them to go, that is fine. We make that available to you. But we're happy for children to stay in here as well. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you should be able to look in the row in front of you and see a um, uh, Bibles kind of scattered throughout that row in the pockets in front of you. If you uh, take that Bible and turn to page number 847, you'll be in the passage that we're going to be in together this morning. Oops, if I take the lid off of that. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. We continue this morning in our study of the gospel. I should mention, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from us, the one that's in the pew in front of you there. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. And we do continue in our study of the gospel of John this morning in a section known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is giving final instruction to his disciples. And reminding them of things he has done and what they are now to do in light of what he has done and in light of what he's about to do. It is a discourse through which we are walking slowly, and I'll remind you that each section we take is tied to both things that are said before and things that are said afterwards. So we're wise to keep this in mind as we study, especially as there are many verses in this that are taken on their own as we shall see this morning. And and it's fine that these verses are taken on their own. There's a lot of encouragement in these verses in chapters 14 and 15. I mean, this is the Lord talking to his men, uh, giving words of encouragement before he goes to the cross and he is raised again and and ascends. And so he's about to leave them. And so there's lots of uh, really rich truth in in these things for us. We don't want to miss the context of them. So I'm going to have you remain seated for the New Testament Scripture reading this morning. John chapter 14, we're actually going to back up to verse 8 and then read down through verse 15. John chapter 14 and verse 8. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When you join me once again in prayer. Lord, this morning we ask your blessing upon our time. We believe, Lord, that the words uh, that are written in the original autographs are inspired by your Holy Spirit. We also believe, Lord, by your word that you can, by your spirit, give us understanding of these words, that we might, Lord, not only have knowledge of them, but that we might believe them and do them as well. 
So, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would attend our time. And, Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that the Spirit would do his work of conviction according to sin and righteousness, that uh, there would be those who do not know you who are in our midst that would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone today. Lord, give us um, that ministry this morning as we study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the document, the Westminster Catechism, the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. It's helpful. Catechisms are helpful for us to to think through areas of the Scripture and doctrine. And uh, question 69 of the larger catechism asks this, What is the communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? The invisible church being the church that is truly united to Christ, not just the visible church where there might be a mixture of saved and unsaved in our midst, but the invisible church, those who are truly in Christ, united to Christ. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible invisible church have with Christ? And it answers in this way, the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of His mediation. It's interesting in God's providence that We read from the confession this morning uh, about his mediation. The communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Notice there the, the places where the believer is united to Christ and therefore united to the triune God and Justification. These are, these are biblical terms that the, the confession and the catechism is picking up here. Uh, in, in justification, that is right standing with God. In, in adoption and in, in being uh, brought into the family of God through virtue of that justification. That justification is based solely upon the finished work of Christ, His perfect life, death, and resurrection. Their justification, their adoption, their sanctification, that is the setting apart unto God, our, our holiness, which we know uh, is in a sense, sense already completed because He will complete that good work in us in the day of Jesus Christ. So we are both sanctified in the sense of set apart unto God, but we are also being sanctified. We are being made more holy and made into the image of Christ. And then I love this. This is this latter part that we Look out this morning, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with Him. In every way that we are connected to Christ. In every way that we are connected to Christ. In the wholeness of our life, we are manifesting our union with Him. Generally stated, what is a manifestation of our union with Christ as we live out this Christian life other than the way in which we live, the, the works that we do. These works which Paul states are not our own, but those which are rooted in Christ, as he says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the order there. <coughs> Excuse me. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, if we are in Christ. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for Good works. The good works come after being regenerated, being made new in Christ. And then he says this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. Whatever else in this life manifests our union with Christ, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, but yes, those things that God calls us to do, our works, it is rooted in God's grace in saving us, not by anything that we have done, but by His sovereign grace. So here's the main idea this morning. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuning in over the live stream, this should have been emailed to you. If we are in Christ, the result of our union with Him is doing His works which flow from love for Him. I think that last part may not be in there. So add it. If we are in Christ, the result of our union with Him is doing His works which flow from our love for Him. And and, and maybe this is something that... Um, I add later on, I can't remember, there's something else there, but the idea that, that, those, that love for Him is not generated from within us, but something that He gives us. Notice the conditional clause of our statement here. If we are in Christ, this is reciprocal. The law tells us of our guilt. When we measure ourselves against the law of God, just take simply the, the Ten Commandments as an understanding of that law that is written on our heart, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2. That law screams to us, you are unrighteous and you are unable to save yourself. That is the guilt that the law brings. But the gospel provides grace. The grace is that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Very God of God, the Son of God eternally takes on humanity, lives a perfect life lives the life that we could not live, fulfills the law, dies the death that we deserve, taking on the justice of God, and He is raised again three days later, and He ascends to the right hand of the Father. That grace provides the love and the obedience in gratitude. So we see guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt from the law. Grace through the gospel. And because of the transformation, the gratitude, the love that we have for God is what motivates us by God's grace through Christ's righteousness to be obedient. It is because of what Christ has done that we are able to do what Christ calls His disciples and us to do here. So I want us to see this morning three realities of our union with Christ and doing His works Three realities of our union with Christ and doing His works. And we have entitled this, Doing the Works of the Son. But we must recognize what those works are rooted in. Number one here, belief in Christ results in doing His works. Belief in Christ results in doing His works. Look again at verse 12. John chapter 14 and verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you. Let me just remind you for a minute. We haven't seen this truly, truly in a while. But remember the rabbis in Jesus' day, after they made a statement, typically uh, something quoting someone else, they would say at the end, amen and amen, or truly, truly, so be it. Jesus front loads his statements because he's God. (laughs) He begins with amen and amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, think about the context in which this is said. Look up above. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am 
in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. These are the the works that Jesus is uh, uh, speaking of here. He's speaking, yes, of the miraculous sign works that he did, but everything that he does, we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John, is in accord with what he is receiving from the Father in his incarnation. The work that he has been sent to do. And when we read something like verse 12 that says, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and even greater works than these, we we might be tempted to automatically jump to the idea of the miraculous works, which are indeed part and parcel of Christ's earthly ministry. But he has shown them the work that he intends for them to do in his new commandment which was that they were to love one another. It is certainly not less than the miracles that are performed as signs of the deity of Christ in the early church age, but it is also the proliferation of the gospel as the means by which the church is established by the early works of the apostles and their close associates, and yet also the spreading of the gospel in the early church, in in the world in the early church. So just thinking kind of, broadly about this as we think about how things go after Christ resurrects and ascends, we understand that this message is part and parcel of Jesus heading towards talking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that ministry of the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what occurs there is that um, uh, the nations, especially the Jews of the nations, gather back to Jerusalem to be at the the Feast of Pentecost, and, and the New Covenant Church is born there in, in that day. And, and so what occurs from there is that the gospel then begins to go around the world. So think about this sort of in the sense of establishment. Jesus comes and preaches what? The good news of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then does works which solidify and and build the foundation of the fact that He is who He says He is. He is the eternal Son of God in flesh, taken on flesh, and then He is put to death for that. He never sins. He fulfills the law perfectly. He goes to the cross. He dies in the place of sinners. He is raised again. He ascends. The Holy Spirit comes, and the church, the new covenant church, begins. And what happens there? Yes, in the early days of the church, the apostles for, for the, the, the idea of confirmation also perform miracles like he performs for the establishment of the church, uh, solidifying and confirming this, these are truly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the church is established and goes throughout the world, we see less and less of those miraculous sign gifts happening because the church is established around the world. Um, in fact, if you think about the uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we really don't have any indication that the Ethiopian eunuch went back home and uh, performed any kind of signs to confirm. It, it seems like he just went back and proclaimed uh, the gospel. And we have evidence, by the way, tracing all the way back to that Ethiopian eunuch in Ethiopia today of the gospel going forth. And one of the early church fathers, Augustine, was a northern African Christian. So praise the Lord for that. But, but we understand this as the establishment. 
One who is united to Christ is the bearer of his message. And we cannot assume that the idea of what Christ is saying here is limited only to the miraculous. It is a way of saying that the work continues even after he goes to the Father. What is the work that Christ gives and by what power will it be accomplished? Well, in whole, we understand, at least we can reduce the work that Christ gives to the disciples that he also gives to us, is to make disciples. We, we might be able to boil this down into two ways of understanding this. Not two ways, but two connected uh, things, if you will. The, the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbor and to make disciples. That is what Christ calls the church to. These are the works that we have to understand uh, without necessarily getting into all the nitty-gritty of the, the sign gifts and those kinds of things. We are to understand that what Christ is talking about when he says a greater work here is not uh, that there are more spectacular signs than what he did, but that the message will go far beyond. And how, what, by what uh, power is this accomplished? It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. He is about to tell them of the coming of the Holy Spirit is by His power, the Spirit's power, they will accomplish the works of Jesus. They will be further witnesses and workers of God's plan in the world after Jesus ascends. The promise of doing the works of Christ is based uh, on belief in Him. Notice that. It's not just that anyone is able to do the works of Christ. It is those who believe in Him. Now, think again of the context here. What is not so obvious to the disciples at this time, but becomes obvious to them later, but what has already occurred is that Judas has already left the fold. To do what? To, to deliver Jesus over to uh, the government, to the, to the religious leaders, and to have him crucified. He has betrayed Jesus. What does he show by the way in which he ends his life? He takes his own life. That he is not one who has had belief in Christ. Jesus is particularly talking to those who believe in him. And that's even what he has spoken of previously. Believe uh, on the account of the works themselves if you don't believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. One of the evidences of belief in Christ is the fruit of works. It is the fruit of doing what God has called us to do. What Christ has called His disciples and subsequently us to do. We do not work as a means of gaining anything, but works are an indication of belief. We are enabled by God through the power of the Spirit, through the finished work of Christ, to do His works in the world. The greater works has to do, as I've said already, with the spread of the gospel. Think about it. Jesus' ministry was very limited to a region he, he, he barely presses out the edges of that region and begins uh, at the end to start to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And when Gentiles come asking of him, if you recall from our study earlier in the Gospel of John, he says it's time. It's time to go to the cross. In the great commission that Jesus will give and the foundation of which he is giving now, there will be a spread of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God that will spread throughout the world, starting with these men. Think of what acts the accusation is of the apostles. These men who would turn the world on its head. Dear brothers and sisters, that is our heritage. That is what we are called to do. That is foundational and grounded upon what the apostles did. We are called to be a people who 
love God and obey Him and love neighbor as ourselves. And part and parcel of that is proclaiming the good news to a lost and dying world so that through God's grace, through His means, by His power and by His plan, the world would be turned on its head. For the believer, the challenge is this. Are we doing the works to which Christ has called us? Now, briefly, theological many treatise here, okay? From my studies in the Scripture, we are beyond the special apostolic works of the early church, by which I mean the foundational miraculous works of the Spirit. But the church being established, we are to do the work that Jesus has called us in making disciples. The, the, the short treatise is about the, the miraculous works. But what are we called to do? We are called to make disciples. We are to teach everything that Christ taught. This is the core of loving our neighbor. We cannot love them without telling them the truth. And our voices are muted if we tell someone about their need of Christ without also showing love for them in the way that Jesus showed love to the least of these. It is both and, it's a both and prospect. We cannot simply say, be warm, be filled, and expect for anyone to hear our message. But we must preach the message. We must tell people that they are sinners just as we are sinners yet redeemed, and they too can be redeemed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, the result of our union with Him is doing His works which flow from our love for Him. That love is established in our hearts. It says He pours out His love in our hearts, and that is an understanding of the Spirit. For the unbeliever, you must hear The words of Christ here concerning belief in Him alone. You you see, belief precedes obedience. Because if you seek to obey God beforehand, number one, you'll fail every time. Even if you see glimmers of that in your life, but, but it will never be enough for you to be reconciled to God because you can't keep the whole law perfectly. Someone had to do that in your place, and that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must believe in Him in order to do the works that He calls you to do. The fruit of justification is works, not the other way around. It is indeed Christ alone, in Christ alone, that these works are done, as we see in our second point. Secondly, the works are done in Christ's name. The works are done in Christ's name. Look at verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice the order here. Whatever you ask in my name, this comes right after stating that the works that Jesus does, they will do in greater measure. The immediate context determines the meaning of this request. The asking in the name of Jesus has to do with the, the works which he was, of which he was just speaking. This is not an arbitrary request for material wealth or anything of the like. Some people want to take these verses out of context. You see, if you ask anything in Jesus' name, he, he will give it to you. No, that is not the point here. This is also not a request that centers on some special gifting that elevates the one who receives, but rather the glory of God is the goal. Jesus says he will do what is asked based on the works he has done and for the glory of the Father. 
Look at what he, he says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, this is not carte blanche access to material blessings or anything like that. I mean, you, you may in your early Christian years have tried this and, you know, like, Lord, I'd really love a Mercedes. <laughs> you know, not understanding what this verse is about. There's many who take this out of context and twist it and then to the damnation of their souls for preaching such things will tell people the reason they haven't gotten it because they don't have enough faith. It has nothing to do with it. Faith is in Christ. That's the whole point of this. Belief is in Christ. The, the works, even the works that follow cannot be attributed to us. They are Christ's works. He says, I do them. If you ask me, I will do them so that the Father will be glorified. That's the point of this. God's greatest desire is for his own glory. And he is glorified in giving good things to his children. But that's not even what this is about. The glory of the triune God is in the outworking of his will to see a people redeemed for him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that in is the end. I'm sorry, that in the end there are worshipers of him. You say, well, God is awfully um, focused on himself. Yes. He is the only one who deserves that. It's called worship. Worthship. He is the only one who is worth, worthy of all glory and all praise. Remember Isaiah 48, 11, For my sake, for my sake shall I do it. My glory I shall not give to another. It is for God's glory, for the sake of His name, that He works in and through a redeemed people. The glory of the triune God is in the outworking of His will to see a people redeemed for Him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in that end, there are worshipers of Him. That is the point. That is the goal of all things. And yes, redemption is a part of that. And we get to be caught up in that exchange of of glory that is given to uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the triune God. I like what John Calvin says about this quote. The end of all things is the sanctification of the name of God, the the setting apart, the, the glory given to the name of God. But here the true method of sanctifying, it is declared. That is in the Son and by the Son. For though the majesty of God be in itself hidden from us, it shine in Christ, though it has been concealed. We have it visible in Christ. The glory of God in our works, brothers and sisters, is not in the way in which we do them. It is the means by which we do them, which is in Christ. Christ is glorified because we seek to glorify Him in doing the things He has called us to do. The works, then, are those which accord with the name of Christ. And by this, we must also understand that these works are done by Christ through the apostles and subsequently through those who follow him. 
And in the same way that Christ earlier in this passage states that the Father works in Him because He and the Father are one in essence, though distinct in person. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. That's the only hope. That's the only hope. We're talking about union with Christ. Just as, and Jesus says this later in this this discourse, just as He is in the Father and the Father is in Him, so we too are in Christ. Does that mean we become a part of divinity in some way? No, that's not the point. The point is that we are connected to Christ who is connected to the Father. And thus, by the Spirit's indwelling, by who He pours out His love into our hearts, we are enabled by the Spirit by Christ's work, by the Father, to do the things He has called us to do. This is all about Christ working through His followers, and it is a a lead-in for Him to talk about the coming of the Spirit as we shall see in coming weeks. In other words, we're kind of leaving a piece out here because we're focusing in on these verses, but I don't want you to miss out on the fact that this is done, this is accomplished in the indwelling of the Spirit. For the believer... The question is, are we representing Christ well to those around us, both to those within our local assembly and to those who are outside of Christ? Are we asking Him to help us as we do the works which accord with His name and will? This helps frame our motives. Are we doing this for the glory of God or are we seeking recognition? Are we seeking somehow to be made right with God through our works. That is the wrong motivation. It's, it's impossible. It must be done for the glory of God. But as Christ is working in and through us, we represent Christ to the world. Now some people have this little statement, I know what they mean by it, that you may be the only Jesus that anybody ever sees. But don't let it stop there. You need to be the only, you need to be the representative and, 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 the, and the proclaimer of Jesus to them. Because I've seen some of you, you don't make a very good Jesus, right? Just like I don't make a very good representation sometimes of Jesus. So we've got to get to Christ. So don't let the statement stop there. You may be the only Jesus anyone ever, you've got to tell them. There's a lot of people out there doing good things. And they have nothing to do with Christianity. They have nothing to do with the person of Christ. Their good things are as filthy rags before God. God doesn't accept those good things. But because we're made in the image of God and we have that, what we call kind of the milk of human kindness within us, people still do good things. I mean, if you ever run into um, Mormons, they're very, very kind Very kind. Kindness does not get you into the kingdom. We were, as a group of, I was a youth pastor, and we had interns, we went to Applebee's, there were some Mormons working there at the time that we had interacted with, and I think even some of them had come to um, some of our friends' houses. They were just kind of in the area for a while. There's a big Mormon temple in St. Louis. And at the end of our meal, this Mormon young man brings out ice cream to us. We didn't order ice cream. And he said, no, good people deserve good things. That was very kind of him. Very gracious. But where where does this get flipped on its head? 
It's not the good things that reconcile us to God because we can never do enough good things. It is Christ who has done it in our place. And so we must bring people to Christ. They must see the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a reflection of Him in us, but we must tell them there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. Are we representing Christ well to those around us, both as we seek to love and care for those within our own flock here. And I pray that you are making that a practice of your life, that you are in touch with brothers and sisters in this local assembly and that you are caring for them, coming alongside of them. Especially, uh, that's one of the benefits of covenant membership. We have a membership class coming up. We want to love and care well for those we know are committed to us. And then, are you also proclaiming that to those who are outside of Christ? And then, in what way? What is the motivation of that? In short, we must be about the task of making disciples, both in the proclamation of the gospel and the discipling of those who come to faith. This is the work. It requires sacrificial love. We like our time and our space, but God has called us to obey His commands and thus show our love for Him and thus glorify Him. If we are in Christ, the result of our union with Him is doing His works which flow from love for Him, from our love for Him. Do we love Him? Do we care about what Christ cares about? Jason, it seems like every week, my friend, you're preaching the same message about what we're to do in response to the good news. That's because that's what the Bible tells us. We can, we can talk about the doctrine and theology, and I love that, and, 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 and want for us as, as, as passages lead us to that theology uh, about uh, Trinitarianism, those kind of things, to, to dig into that. But to what end? Yes, those are foundational, and we must, we must know them, we must love those doctrines and theology. But the practical application of that is what has God called us to do in loving Him and loving our neighbor? If we are in Christ, the result of our union with Him is doing His works which flow from our love for Him. Do we love Him? Do we care about what He cares about? For the unbeliever, the question is, have you understood today who Jesus is claiming to be? And are you turning to Him as the only one who is able to rescue you from your sin and from His righteous judgment? Consider the claims of Christ. We have seen belief in Christ results in doing works. And the works are done in Christ's name. We see lastly that, number three, the works are in accord with Christ's commandments and a result of loving Him in verse 15. Look at it with me. Again, a a very familiar passage to us, something that we hear all the time. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Anything that we do, in the name of Christ, ought to accord with what Christ commands. Anything that we do in the name of Christ, which, by the way, if you're in Christ, ought to be everything that you do, should accord with Christ's commands. He previously spoke of a new command. After washing his disciples' feet, he tells them to love one another. This is obviously not a new command in content, as we looked back in that passage in chapter 13 when we saw this. 
but in practice because he has come to show them sacrificial love like that which is promised of old but is now in their presence. God dwelling with them. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ, the love of God in flesh, dwelling among them. Love like this. Love one another, he says in this new command. Now he is saying if they love him, they will keep his commandments. What exactly are the commandments of Christ? What are the commandments of Christ? Again, can we not boil these down to simply loving God and loving neighbor? And again, there's an expanse of truth underneath the rubric of loving God and loving neighbor. But is that not the rubric, the lens through which we are to live our lives? Calvin applies this to the immediate context of him leaving and their desire to keep him with them. So Christ turns their attention to doing what he has commanded them. In other words, they're wanting to cling to him. They're understanding now more and more that he is going to leave them after he dies and is resurrected. And their focus is upon, Lord, don't leave us. And he is saying, of course, the Spirit will be sent. I will not leave you as orphans, as he says in a few verses. But be careful to obey my commands. It is clear that this verse ties together the verses we are studying today and those in which Jesus begins to explicitly talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The commandments that they do will be by the power of the Spirit. Again, in one sense, this focuses on Him going away. They will need to continue to obey Him even after He is gone. Now listen, it's not easy for us to understand what they are going through because we have never had Jesus physically present with us and be the one who is guiding us and helping us. It's interesting that Jesus in just a few verses here says, the Spirit who is now with you will be in you. How is the Spirit with them? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is the one superintending Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, in Jesus' baptism, what happens? The Spirit, who is another person in the Trinity, yet still one in essence with God, descends upon the Son like a dove and sanctifies His earthly ministry. As Jesus is being led by the Spirit in His earthly ministry, so He is leading His men. It's not easy for us to grasp what they must be going through as they think about Jesus leaving them. We have the Holy Spirit, which is good and right, but they are thinking Christ will continue to be with them. And He is telling them, even when I am gone, if you truly love me, you will continue to follow me to do what I tell you to do. What I have told you to do. I love what Carson says here. What the one who loves Jesus will observe is not simply an array of discrete ethical injunctions, but the entire revelation from Father, revelation holistically conceived. In other words, we are to live out the Bible. Yes, we can reduce this to loving God and loving neighbor, but where do we see expressions of that in inspired writ? It is is God's word to us. The question may arise in your mind, of course, if, is does the context mean that this doesn't apply in general to the sense of all of our lives as Christians? In other words, we usually hear this verse as a way of saying that if we truly love Christ, we will keep His command, commandments, and we aren't usually thinking about the context of the entire passage here. The answer is, of course, a resounding yes. 
We should be thinking of this in the sense of all of our life as those who are in Christ. It is holistic. It is who we are. If we are in Christ, we are new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? That we might do them. Not for our glory, but for His glory. Now, in the Old Testament, we see both the command to obey and the promise of blessing with obedience. But we also see how God tells them that they will rebel and that it will be with the circumcision of their hearts that they will finally return to Him. So so the Old Testament is is consistently, uh, en masse, like the majority of Israel, saying, yes, we will obey God, and then turning their hearts towards idols, and then God coming and, and doing something to grab their attention, whether that is... Uh, exile or, or having nations come in and battle with them until they say, Lord, please forgive us. We want to follow you. And then the cycle goes on and on. We see that in the book of Judges quite a bit. There are what we call the remnant in the Old Testament who get it. Right? Joshua and Caleb, for instance. You know, No, we need to trust the Lord. He told us he's going to give us this land. And Well, no, we're not going to do that. Well, 40 more years in the wilderness. Yay. What enables Joshua and Caleb to obey? It's not something within them. It's something that God gives them. It's faith. It's the conduit of faith. They believe God. They took Him at His word. It's a God-given thing. Faith. Believe in Me. Do also the works that I tell you to do. It's, It's Faith precedes obedience. And so Joshua and Caleb say, let's go into the land. Right? This is what God has called us to do. We believe Him. Faith precedes obedience. But God says, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to continue to rebel until your hearts are circumcised. And that circumcision of the heart will not be finalized until Christ comes and obeys where Israel has failed. This is Christ's active obedience where Christ fulfills the law of God and the law of God to Israel and as such becomes the substitute for those who cannot obey God and love Him as they ought. Old covenant believers are united to the future work of Christ which becomes a reality in Christ and we are united to Christ's finished work and are able to walk according to His statutes because He has saved us and we are being conformed to His image. Notice Jesus' expression of, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, seems to be a compact way of expressing the greatest commandment. Loving God equals doing His commandments. Christ has come and love is shown through sacrifice. We are to follow His example to love God and to love others. But this is not possible without truly being in Him. And we are in Him by virtue of His loving sacrifice, in which He takes our sin upon himself and dies in our place and is raised again. And then we recognize, as he is saying this, it's all in light of the coming Holy Spirit, which we'll see in a few weeks. For now, we are witnessing that if we are in Christ, the results of our union with him is doing his works, which flow from love for him. Therefore, believers, if we are in Christ... The result of our union with Him is doing His works, which flow from our love for Him. So that, You just said that. Yeah, but that's what we're to do. Right? Our love is, of course, from Him, and He has loved us and given His life for us. Are we doing His works out of love for Him? 
And are we doing his works at all? What are you doing with your life? And this can be one of those kind of questions that can make us feel defeated if we think, I I have not been living for him the way I ought to be living for him, so what's the point? Well, I hope you see the point today. It's not to to walk out of here defeated and saying, I've not done it and therefore I must just give up. No. You can't do anything in and of yourself. It is because of Christ. It is because of the Spirit. Make a commitment today to do that. To submit, to say, it is not in my power, it is in Christ's power by the Spirit that I live for Him, that I love God, that I love neighbor, that I come alongside of my brothers and sisters in this local assembly and and care for them, that I proclaim the gospel to those around me, that I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that I make it about Him. Commit today to that. Are you striving after comfort or after sacrifice? Are you striving for the glory of God because you love Him and rooted in your union with Him? Or are you seeking the fulfillment of other pleasures? Is your delight in Him? Do the work which He has called you to do. Consider where God has you in your life, in your season of life. Husband, father, wife, mother, working, retired, grandmother, in school, grandfather, child who is trusted in Christ, family, friends, neighbors. If you love Him, you will keep His commandments. Consider where God has you and what He has called you to do and ask yourself if you are taking opportunity to obey Him in all areas of your life. I sent out small group questions already. There's one I I thought of this morning, so if you're in a small group, you might want to write this down. Work out some of this in small groups tonight. Ask in what ways you can be using what God has given you in all the ways I just said in the season of life that you're in. What ways? Make, make, Make it super practical. Right? Come up with these together and hold each other accountable to them. In what ways can you be using what God has given you to accomplish what He has called you to do? I'll send it out later for those of you who can't write fast enough. But make that really super practical in small groups tonight. What, where, has, where does God have me? How would God have me to glorify Him in obeying His commands? And then finally, my plea with you, if you are one who is not in Christ, is that you would hear the gospel today, that Christ lived a perfect life that you could not live. You are a sinner who is separated from God. Christ did not sin. He died in the place of sinners just like you. And he rose three days later. And if you would turn from your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we should not go forth from here feeling heavy because you have told us in your word that the works you call us to do are not for the means of making sure that we are somehow reconciled to you. We could never do that, but we should not feel heavy because Christ has done that for us. 
And therefore we do these things in His power, not to earn anything from you, but because you have done these things and will do these things in us. So help us to be, yes, aware, walking circumspectly, aware of what season of life you have us in and how we're to obey these things, but never as a burden, Lord, only as a delight as we consider what you have done for us. Lord, may we love you and obey you and keep your commandments. Lord, you pray for the ones in this room this morning who do not know you. I pray that they would come to know you. They would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.